there. We're so glad that you're joining us for Chapel Under the Oaks. This is the message for the fifth Sunday of Easter, May 2nd, 2021. Today, as every Sunday, we continue to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are focusing today on what the disciples were doing and learning between the resurrection and Pentecost, and how they were changed by Easter and how we are changed as well. Today, our focus is on mercy. Our key scripture is Matthew 5 through 7, or 5, 7, and I'm reading from the King James Version. We hear Jesus's words. These are part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Our full scripture reading also comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and we have several examples of Jesus both demonstrating and teaching about mercy. I invite you to open your Bible and follow along. I will be reading this time from the New International Version. First, Matthew 9, 9-12, Jesus calling Matthew to be his disciple. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, Matthew 12, 1 through 8, Jesus teaching about the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. From Matthew 18, 23 through 35, Jesus teaching on mercy. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. 
Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. And finally, Matthew 26, 6 through 13, Jesus living out mercy. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, make me an instrument of your salvation and sanctification for these precious people that you've entrusted to my care through this podcast today, that by my life and teaching, I may set forth your true and living word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old hymn entitled, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. Now, we didn't sing this today, but it's appropriate for this message because there is so much to say about the topic of mercy. It's one of the defining characteristics of God. He is gracious. He is loving. He is forgiving. He is merciful. So, spoiler alert here, this is going to be a two-part sermon. We are going to talk about mercy today, but an essential part of being merciful is, of course, 
forgiveness. And that we will talk about next week. Being merciful, gracious, and forgiving, it all falls under the umbrella of being kind and compassionate, which is, if you've listened to last week's sermon, it's what we talked about then. See what's happening here. All of these lessons on what the disciples learned at, at, by Easter, how they were changed by Easter, how they learned out to how to live out the new covenant and the new commandment of love one another. All of these things build on one another, stick together, live in community, loving and supporting one another. Do that by being compassionate and kind. Show your compassion and kindness by being merciful and forgiving. We are zeroing in on what it means to be and do Jesus to others. And knowing we have quite a bit of ground to cover today, it may seem odd to you that I'm going to start by talking about a movie that Keith and I saw this last week. You may have noticed that I don't recommend many current movies to you. There aren't many to recommend, but this one is different and I hope you will see it someday, if you've not already. The title is The Girl Who Believes in Miracles. Now I'll tell you just a bit, not enough to ruin it for you. It's the story of a young girl named Sarah Hopkins, who is a strong believer. She listens in church one Sunday as her pastor talks about the faith that, that it, the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. She takes him at his word, and she begins to pray to God over those in need, first for animals and later for human beings. And God answers her prayers with miraculous healings. This leads to one of my favorite scenes early in the film. Word of the power of Sarah's prayers gets out in her small town, and one Saturday morning, her family wakes up to a front yard full of people bringing their loved ones to Sarah for prayer and hopefully healing. Her parents, as parents tend to do, want to protect her. So they lock the door and say to her, don't go out there, Sarah. If you do, your life will be changed forever. Some people will think you're crazy. Others will take advantage of you and they will never stop coming. And then, <laughs> this is my favorite part. Her mom adds, you haven't even had breakfast yet. Come eat some pancakes. You know, as a mom, <laughs> I totally get this. Food fixes everything, or at least postpones the inevitable. And so at first, Sarah dutifully follows her parents into the kitchen, but then she turns, unlocks the front door, and comes outside to face the crowd of hopeful faces, to pray over them, to share God's love, to extend God's grace. And she is willing to do that no matter what others might think of her, no matter how foolish she might appear, no matter how it might change her life. And even before breakfast, Sarah chooses mercy. You may remember that people in need of healing throughout the Bible would often cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. When Jesus 
tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector praying in the temple. The tax collector begins his prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So what exactly do we mean by mercy? The New Testament, of course, was originally written in Greek, the language of the Greco-Roman world. And the Greek word that is typically translated in English or to English as mercy is ilios. Now, ilios means literally unmerited favor or this expanded version, which I found in a dictionary, kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. So think about this. At the divine level, it's the mercy of God expressed through the sacrificial death of Jesus toward us, you and me. It's the saving grace by which we are all gathered here at Chapel Under the Oaks today. But at its most basic level, at its human level, mercy is one person showing kindness to another. It's the golden rule doing unto others as we would hope they would do unto us. Not as we necessarily deserve, but what we hope for. In our scriptures today, we saw four scenarios the disciples might have reflected on as they thought about what Jesus taught them about mercy. Let's look at them as a group. First, note that they are all from the Gospel of Matthew. And several of them are found only in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is one of these, as it is the calling of Matthew to become Jesus' disciple, one of the twelve. Now, in the other Gospels, we read about the calling of the fishermen, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, and various other disciples. But only here in Matthew do we read about this most radical of choices that Jesus makes in choosing a tax collector to be one of his inner circle. A tax collector, one of the most, if not the most hated of professions in Jesus's day. Hated perhaps even more than the Roman soldiers that patrolled the streets. For the tax collector was actually a fellow Jew who now collaborated with the Romans for personal gain. He took money from his Jewish brothers and gave it to the Romans, all the while becoming wealthy himself. And yet Jesus chooses him. And Matthew wants the world to know that. In the second scenario, we find Jesus breaking the Sabbath law, not the one God gave Moses to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, but one that the Pharisees came up with to help the people keep God's law. And this man-made law required that no work be done on the Sabbath. And picking grain to fill a hungry stomach was work. And here Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Hosea, saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay, well, actually, that's not correct. Jesus isn't quoting Hosea, for Hosea was just the human mouthpiece. Jesus, God incarnate, is actually repeating something he said through Hosea many years ago. 
And though this incident is also recorded in the Gospel of Mark, this quotation, this reference to desiring mercy over sacrifice, it's not there. It's only here in Matthew and actually quoted elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel also. Our third scripture comes from the teachings of Jesus, one of his many parables, but this one is about a servant who was shown mercy by his master, but refused to extend that same mercy to someone else when he had the opportunity. And this parable is, you guessed it, only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Finally, the disciples would surely have remembered the last incident that I read earlier, for it had just occurred maybe a month or so before, just before Jesus was arrested and crucified, just before Easter. We talked about it here in Chapel Under the Oaks about a month ago also, as we took Jesus's journey to Jerusalem with him. At that time, we talked about how Jesus refused to chastise the woman who poured the expensive perfume on his head. The other disciples thought it was wasteful, especially Judas, but Jesus chose mercy. He judged her not to be wasteful, but acting out of love for him. But today, I want us to focus on another detail of the story that we kind of scooted right over as we read it. We didn't discuss it last month because at that time, we used the recording in Luke's gospel, and it's omitted there. But Matthew makes sure it's included because it's important, especially important to him and to us. What is this mystery piece of the puzzle? Well, it's in the very first sentence. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now, just let that sink in. Jesus is in the home of a leper. What? How could that be? Lepers lived in caves together outside of town so they could not infect others. They were quarantined. We know a little bit about that, don't we? Isolated from society. They didn't have homes and no one especially an Orthodox Jew, would come close to one. And yet, we read that Jesus is dining in the home of Simon the leper. Not only Jesus, which I guess we might understand because he was divine and maybe immune to leprosy, but his disciples also. And the woman with the perfume was there. What's going on here? There is only one explanation. Simon was a healed leper. Perhaps one of the lepers that Jesus himself healed throughout his ministry. That would make sense. Simon had leprosy at some point, yes, but he was no longer afflicted with the disease. And yet, his name in Matthew's gospel is Simon the leper. Hmm. Once a leper, 
Always a leper, it seems. How harsh, how sad, how unfair to be judged by what you once were or by one mistake you made or by something like leprosy or the color of your skin or your parentage or your country of origin over which you have no control. And so Jesus, always gracious, always merciful, always compassionate and kind, is dining in Simon's home with his disciples, living out, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for everyone to see. And just so we know how radical this was, how countercultural Jesus was, Matthew calls Simon by the name the world calls him, Simon the leper. Once a leper, always a leper. And that is the challenge of choosing mercy in this world. Mercy is perhaps the most controversial, countercultural of all the characteristics of our loving God. In another movie from way back in the 1980s, there's this story of the Karate Kid. Remember that one? And there we find this philosophy spoken by one of the characters. We do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here in the streets, in competition, a man confronts you. He is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. This is the world's philosophy. Give someone mercy and they will take advantage of you. Survival of the fittest. Take care of number one. But Jesus says in our key scripture, blessed are the merciful for they will obtain mercy. I chose the King James Version for us to read today specifically because of the word obtain. In other versions, it's translated shown or receive. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. They will receive mercy. But for me, there's a big difference between obtain and receive and be shown. To say that we will obtain mercy speaks to a desire, something that we're looking for. We obtain something we want for ourselves. We aren't just given a gift we didn't even ask for. We desire this for ourselves. In fact, we crave mercy. And yet, we are often so unwilling to give it to others. And why is that? Well, I believe it's difficult for us to choose mercy because we have to give someone the benefit of the doubt. We have to assume the best, not the worst. And here's the rub. We might get it wrong. We might be taken advantage of. We might not look like the savvy worldwise didn't come into town on a wagon load of wood people that we want the world to see. We might look mm, foolish. And indeed, being seen as foolish when we choose mercy is almost a certainty. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians. For God in his wisdom 
saw to it that the world would never find God through human brilliance. And then he stepped in and saved all those who believed his message, which the world calls foolish. The world sees the message of Jesus and those who proclaim it as foolish, which begs this question then, as Christ followers, should we be afraid of looking foolish to the world? (laughs) Actually, when we as Christ's church look foolish to the world, we know we are living the life of salvation. We are proclaiming God's message of love and grace and mercy through our very lives. Because here's the bottom line. Looking foolish is looking like Jesus. So why is the title of this message, Choose Mercy? Why not show mercy or be merciful? Well, in truth, those should work because ideally we should be doing mercy all the time. It should be a natural impulse, right? We should not having to have to be deciding whether to show mercy or not. We should not have to choose it because we should not be making a judgment call. We know that, don't we? We know the King James version of that one too. Say it with me. Judge not lest ye be judged. But let's be honest. We are still judging, aren't we? Every day, many times a day for most of us, whether we actually speak the words of judgment, they are there in our minds and in our hearts. It's so ingrained in us by the world we live in, especially the world we live in today, to critique everything and everyone, to share our opinion, to post a review, that we do it without thinking. And most of the time, it's harmless on the surface. We're just critiquing someone's choice of clothing or a hairstyle or a TV show or a movie. But sometimes judging is about a person's character and who they are, whether giving them mercy is warranted, deserved. And that's when we have to make a choice. Do we choose the way of the world? Do we assume the worst about people? Are we quick to make a judgment based on limited information? Do we worry so much about being perceived as naive or foolish that we choose cruelty over compassion, street smarts over sensitivity? Or do we assume that the man who cuts us off in traffic and speeds away is taking his pregnant wife to the hospital? Do we consider that perhaps the waitress who messed up our order and and can't seem to get the food out is working off of two hours of sleep and worried about a sick child at home? Do we decide that the homeless man who is in the median holding up a sign really does have a family at home who needs help? Do we forget that Simon was once a leper and just now call him Simon. Not ex-con, ex-druggy, ex-drunk, or former prostitute. 
So much of mercy is about what's inside of us, what we are thinking about people, because the truth is our thoughts become our words and our actions. And yes, if we choose mercy, we might get it wrong. We might give the benefit of the doubt where it is not deserved. But isn't that what mercy is all about? For if there was no offense, if mercy had somehow been earned, then it would not be mercy. And that's why we focused on the Gospel of Matthew today. For Matthew, more than any of the other disciples, Matthew knows all about mercy. Jesus calls him to follow him. Even as Matthew sits in his tax collector's booth, Matthew knows he does not deserve to be a part of the inner circle. Jesus chooses mercy. Matthew also wants us to know that that Jesus prefers mercy to meaningless sacrifices in the temple. He tells us that twice. And Matthew records the obscure parable about the servant who received mercy but did not extend it to others. Because Matthew knows something about that also, about receiving mercy. And he wants the world to know what he has learned through Jesus, that when you receive mercy, you must choose it for others as well. And Matthew wants us to know that with Jesus, with his Savior, it doesn't matter who you were, a leper, a sinner, as we all are. What matters is what God, through Jesus, has given you. New life, undeserved favor, mercy. And as we consider mercy for others, as we worry so much about getting it wrong, about looking foolish, we must never forget this. At some point, God looked pretty foolish saving us, you and me, entrusting his message to us. Based on our history, we were not a good bet. He had to give us the benefit of the doubt, assume the best about us. God had to choose mercy. At the end of the girl who believes in miracles, there's another scene in the front yard of her house. Again, people are gathered. And this time, as she comes outside, they kneel to her as if she is a God, someone who's worthy of their worship. She goes to each one, telling them to stand, telling them that all she did was pray, and God heard her prayers and answered them. God is the miracle worker, not her. And then she concludes by telling them that she is just like them. They, too, can see God, hear him, claim his power. That's what we need to remember if we have a chance of being merciful as Jesus was merciful, as God is merciful. Choosing mercy, well, it's it's not something that comes naturally to us, and it's certainly not something we see promoted in our world. It's countercultural, against all norms. It's possibly even foolish. 
But like Matthew, once we understand the chance that God took on us, the mercy he extended to us, we know that there's only one way we can ever hope to extend that mercy to others. Like little Sarah Hopkins, we first must pray. Pray for strength. Pray for healing. Pray for wisdom. Pray for kindness. Pray for the power to choose mercy. Amen.